What's up, everybody? This is Carlos Colazo here for another Baseball America podcast. I am joined by J.J. Cooper for a very special edition of the podcast. Uh, just a few days ago, J.J. finished up our Braves Before They Were Stars book, and we sent that to press. And then seemingly the very next day, he dropped an absolute bombshell on the website. Uh, it's an MLB proposal that would shake up minor league baseball as we know it. J.J., number one, how are you still awake? And number two, what does this all mean? Who says I'm awake? Uh, that part I don't know. But, uh, no, it's, it's been a crazy couple of days, but a fun one. I'm not, I'm not complaining. You know, I, the, the two top tens I have to do next week, will, will, they'll figure out somehow they'll get done. Somehow we'll get them done. But, I mean, this, this really is fascinating. There's a ton to unpack here. You've done an excellent job kind of breaking down all the, the nuances as we know them at this point. And, again, this is just a proposal. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future, but there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I guess let's just start with what's, what's the big, what's the big headline here? What's the biggest news? <laughs> there are a lot of headlines here. Um, okay. Let's try to start with, one. <laughs> if I could pick one, this is a preliminary proposal, but in a preliminary proposal as MLB and minor league baseball begin in-depth negotiations, MLB is proposing to radically change the structure of minor league baseball. Mm -hmm. Minor league baseball, if this proposal was adopted, minor league baseball in 2021 would bear little resemblance to the minor league baseball that everyone sees right now. Mm -hmm. How about that? I mean, that, that sounds pretty good. I guess my next natural question would be, what is the reasoning for shaking up the minor league system now from MLB's point of view? Obviously, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball have different incentives, and they're probably wanting different things here. Um, but, but at the core, what, what would be the reason to change how the Minor League Baseball system currently operates? Okay. So what Major League Baseball wants is several things. I, I'll just kind of lay out their whole, their whole thing. Mm -hmm. They feel like, and I think that there is agreement between Major League Baseball and Minor, minor League Baseball on this, that current facilities are not to the standard that they need to be around the minor leagues. That doesn't mean every minor league facility by any stretch, because it's really hard to compare Las Vegas, which opened a brand new many, many million dollar stadium last year, or Wichita is going to open a many, many million dollar, I think $90 million stadium in 2020. It's hard to compare that with a 55 year old ballpark that hasn't been significantly upgraded in 25 years. Mm -hmm. There has not been a dramatic change, a significant change in the facility standards for minor league baseball in the past, since the 1990 PBA. So that's one thing. MLB's viewpoint is that roughly a quarter of all current affiliated MILB teams are far below the standard that they believe is acceptable. Mm -hmm. They want those all – they want to have every minor league affiliated team in what they deem an acceptable facility. And acceptable means good weight room, good clubhouse, you know, good place for the players to eat, mm -hmm. um, room for the coaches, which coaching staffs have gotten much bigger over the last few years, mm -hmm. room for the video, you know, analyst, which did not exist, you know, years ago. There are more trainers now, all these things. So more space devoted to – providing 
room for the for the players, coaches, all that. Mm-hmm. So they also okay. No, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Continue. So they also see it as they believe that currently travel around minor league baseball is in their eyes unacceptable. Yep, that's where I was they, going next. They think they think uh, that there are too many really long bus trips. They are unhappy with the fact that some of these bus trips are not on sleeper buses, which they feel are superior for a long overnight bus ride to a, a standard bus where you're you know, sleeping in your chair or sleeping on the floor. Amazing how, how one of those does not seem ideal. Um, Okay, so there's that. There's also the, they have a problem with currently, currently every two years when player development contracts come due, which is the player development contract is how major league teams affiliate with minor league clubs. The minor league clubs are actually their own separately owned entities in most cases. MLB teams do own some clubs, but they're their own as entities. And the whole, this all comes down to essentially an affiliation agreement. Teams sign a two or they can sign longer, but essentially usually a two-year PDC is what it's called and says the Nationals are going to supply players for this team for the next two years. And the team, the minor league team is responsible for, you know, providing a a reasonable facility for doing, you know, providing everything around that. Mm -hmm. Well, there is right now very much, and we've seen it time and time again, there's a game of musical chairs when PDCs come along because there are always teams that no one wants to be stuck with. Yep. I'll single out two because they do not exist anymore. High Desert and Bakersfield, it was like, it was musical chairs. And those in high A were the two clubs that no one wanted to end up with generally. And Major League Baseball is, does not think that, that they do not like that system. They do not like that currently and over the last decade, really, there's almost always been a, an East Coast team that has a AAA affiliate out on the, you know, on the, on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. They don't think that's ideal. They want all these things to be tied more geographically to their big league club. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want that. They want, those to, those, they want that structure completely changed. They, I would say, feel like that minor league teams have too much leverage in that mm-hmm. because what has often happened is, is a team that ends up in a really bad situation, two years later what they end up doing is they end up buying a minor league club to avoid ever being in that situation again. Mm-hmm. So those are, you know, those are the things. Those are big things. But then the key one that I think drives the impetus of all of this is – there is now an acceptance that minor league players are going to get paid more. Mm-hmm. There is an acceptance that $1,200 a month is probably not sufficient uh, you know, for a minor league player. And so I've heard the, the number I have heard on multiple occasions is, is looking at probably like a 50% raise. Yeah. Well, that would – so Major League Baseball's viewpoint is, is that's going to happen. They're going to, you know, but at the same time, they do not want to, they do not want that entire expense to fall on them. 
So I guess my question would be with this, because there's been a lot of feedback already, not, I wouldn't say feedback, a lot of reaction online to this story. A, a lot of people that I've seen are upset with it because they see the number of teams getting cut. They think less players are going to be making, I mean, less players in this system would be paid to play baseball. Do you think it's a case of one step forward and one step back? Or do you think there was never going to be a way for minor league players to get paid more without some sort of consolidation of the minor league system? Oh, there's ways, but is there a willingness to have those ways? That, I, mean, I guess, you know, is a better way to pose the question. What I'm saying is, is that while both Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball may see that players are going to get paid more, I mean, okay, let's just unpack this for a minute. Let's say, again, understandably people are focusing on the proposal that Major League Baseball has floated, which would cut their way to do it. They're saying, okay, here's a way we could do this. Yeah. We're going to take those 25% of teams that we feel like are far, far below the facility standard that we expect, and we're going to drop them out of affiliated ball. Yep. And that doesn't mean they're going to drop all short season and rookie ball teams out. It means they're going to drop what they believe as subpar facilities in many cases, there may be some debate about how you define a subpar facility, um, but they're going to take the subpar facilities and they're going to drop them out of affiliated ball. And then just reshuffle everything. And then that also means that they're going to take above the bar as they see it facilities in short season clubs in, you know, in maybe even rookie level clubs mm -hmm. and move them to full season ball. And so, they said, if we do that, you know, and then they would also be very strict. So they would say, okay, our reclassification in this proposal, you've got low A, high A, double A, triple A, and you've got a complex league team, Arizona or GC or Gulf Coast. You have a complex league team, and that's it. And they could significantly cut the cost of salaries that way because, like, to take an example, and this is the extreme example, but mm -hmm. the Yankees have currently eight U – North American, take the DSL, the Dominican Summer League out of it. Mm -hmm. Eight North American minor league clubs. Yep. Each club, let's just say for now, for purposes of this, for the offseason, you can, can, you can have at, at AAA, at Major League is 40, that's not counting this. AAA, you can protect 38 players, 37 in AA, 35 at every level of that. So that is 285 players that are under Yankees team control. Mm -hmm. Under the proposal, a team like the Yankees would now be able to have 150 minor league players under team control. So that lops off 130 players. Mm -hmm. If you go from paying 285 players to 150 and you raise salaries by 50%, you still have cut your costs, right? Yep. And for most teams, which do not have 285 players up to 285 team control, if you lop off a short season club, you know, that's, 30, 35 players that you've locked off. You've reduced the draft from, which we'll get into more later, but from, from 40 rounds to 20 or 25. Mm -hmm. You reduce the number of players who are in affiliated ball. And so that cuts the cost. Now, they also, there are other ways you could do this. You could say, okay, how we're going to do this is we're going to share these costs with minor league baseball. In the 1990 PBA, and there's a story up in Baseball America that spells out the history of the professional baseball agreement between minors and majors, which was a lot of fun research for me. 
and I know I'm weird to have enjoyed doing that, but I really no, do. I, I mean, it's it. interesting to read. I, I think it'll be interesting to a lot of other people, not just baseball nerds but, uh, such as yourself. But in the 1990 agreement, before that, which is most people understandably do not realize, before that, minor league baseball and major league baseball shared the expenses of paying for players. Mm-hmm. There was a time when Basically, MLB subsidized the salaries of players, but ML, um, minor league teams were responsible for a, a, a portion of that. Mm-hmm. Well, they changed that in 1990. MLB teams were responsible for paying the players, but M- ILB teams had to pay a ticket tax. So they took some of their revenue from every ticket they sold and sent it to Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, the number I've heard on that now is, is that, that basically that number is currently somewhere around $18 million dollars. Uh, that is sent to Major League Baseball in a normal year. Well, you could theoretically up the ticket tax significantly, and so Minor League Baseball would subsidize the increased costs of paying Minor League players more without reducing players. I mean, that's theoretically possible. Again, I don't know. I do not have the reporting right now to say whether that is you know, financially feasible for minor league baseball teams. I would say that the, I would say from my understanding that you would probably hear that some teams it is feasible, some it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but that would be another way to do it. You could conceivably figure out a way to get all these facilities up to MLV's desired standards or close to it. That 1990 PBA, which is, was a landmark, Change. It's the biggest change in the PBA until potentially this one. Yeah. With that one, it also required rather massive upgrades to facilities. And at the time that it was passed, it was thought, oh, this is going to kill the minor leagues. Yeah. These stadiums aren't going to meet it. We're not going to be able to make minor league baseball work. And what in actuality happened is – while they were given a little bit of leeway on how quickly they had to be done, but eventually all these cities ended up building either massively upgrading their parks or in many cases building new baseball parks. Mm-hmm. And once they built new baseball parks, teams drew a lot more fans to a nice modern stadium rather than one that was built in the 30s. And so attendance really rose, and it ended up being great news for minor league baseball. Well, there is some belief now that the, that the environment has changed and it is much less realistic to think that teams would be able to get these upgrades paid for by cities. There would there'd be a lot more of out-of-pocket expenses, which is something that, I, you know, whether, again, that's a debate for another day, but whether it's realistic or not, I, I don't think there's a lot of uh, appetite for uh, significantly going out of pocket for owners to do these these upgrades themselves, especially mm-hmm. I will note on stadiums that they do not own. Yep. So you know, a, a city-owned stadium or a county-owned stadium, you probably as an owner don't necessarily want to put a whole lot of money in that you don't own the stadium. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So so again, there are ways to get to this potentially that don't involve it. It could be that this is a salvo of like, this is the worst case scenario and it ends up being something less, this is a negotiation. Or it could be that no, this really is the indication that Major League Baseball wants to dramatically increase its 
control and power over how the minor league baseball is structured. Mm -hmm. And this leads to a rather massive change, uh, essentially, you know, I mean, for the 2021 season. So not from that, that far from now. Yeah. And you briefly mentioned this. I wanted to kind of dive into it a little more because obviously it's what I cover here at Baseball America. But but the draft being reduced from 40 to 20 to 25 rounds, as you put it, in, in the piece and moving the draft back to August. I've had a few conversations with some scouts about the ramifications for this and the pros and cons. But I'm curious uh, how this uh, how the news about the draft um, factors into everything here and what your thoughts are on it. Well, if I was a scout, I'm not real happy. Uh, let me make clear, an amateur scout, I would yeah. not be happy about that. I would not be happy at all. And the reason I say that is, is that if you're an amateur scout, and you know this better than I do, but I've had many a scout describe it to me of how their, their year works. Mm -hmm. And, okay, let's start with the current draft situation. So the draft ends early June. You sign the players from that draft class, and then you move on to the next year's draft class. But yep. by everyone's explanation to me, you know, the summer on the Cape, the summer at USA Baseball, the summer wherever you are, while it is significant, while it's important, it is running at a lower level of intensity than it is from January to June in the lead up to the draft. As far as the, the scouts level of intensity is what you're right. trying to. Yes. Right. Right. They are absolutely getting a read on players. They're getting to understand players, getting to know players. Yes. But that June to September frame is, you know that the draft is not a month away. Yes. And so you are setting your board, you're understanding your area if you're an area scout, you're understanding the scope of, of kind of who you need to focus on if you're a scouting director, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Then you get to fall, and in fall, you're doing more of that. You're doing your questionnaires if you're an area scout. You're getting to know the players. You're going to scout days. You're doing all these things. You're still working, but it's at a lower level of intensity. Mm -hmm. And then it ramps up in January, and it's – full bore, pedal to the metal from basically January till the draft day. 100%. And, and you are working at a massive, you know, like high intensity level for that, for those six months. Mm -hmm. If you move the draft back to August, I, I mean, some massive things are going to happen. For one, the summer showcase circuit, as I see it, my prediction is, is it changes dramatically. It has to. There's no, there's no way for it not to. You know, right now, as it stands, the summer showcase circuit is all about the, the next year's class and the year after that's class. Yep. High school players who just finished their junior year are the main focus during the summer showcase season. So right now, the 2020 draft class, all these kids over the summer had just finished their junior seasons. Uh, and, and these are all the players that scouts and scouting departments are doing their follow reports on and getting a feel for. When it moves back to August, you've got the issue of, okay, we've just seen all of the draft-eligible high school players during their spring season. Now they have a summer where they can continue to play before the draft, so we have to keep bearing down on them in some capacity, uh, yes. depending on what, whatever. In some massive capacity, anyways. Like, 
Exactly. But right now you can't not know that. uh, You can't know if you have an area Mm -hmm. and a pitcher in your area shakes his elbow, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, walks off the mound and, you know, holding his elbow in, Mm -hmm. in, in late July, you better know about it. (laughs) Exactly. So, so you have that, you have those kids who you'd, you'd be getting extra two months basically to watch them. In addition to this is the time of year when you're supposed to be getting a feel for next year's group. So the timing of it and and the schedule is going to change significantly if this were to happen. Um, Another thing that was brought up to me as far as one of one of the maybe the biggest pros of potentially having uh, the draft in August, and this is obviously from from the scouting side, um, is you would you would be more it would be easier to have some sort of medical combine if that was agreed to. The college mm-hmm. season would be done. The high school season would be done. And from the team side, that would be an absolutely massive benefit to have. Having some sort of understanding of where these kids are in their physicals, having team doctors like the other major drafts in the NFL and NBA, having some sort of medical combine so you don't have to draft a kid. And then later, once you've already made the pick, have your doctors go over and do a physical and then find out, oh, there are these medical issues. We have to avoid the contract now. No team enjoys voiding a contract. And I think having the potential to maybe implement that would be a pro from moving, moving the draft back to August. Now, whether or not the player side would agree to that is, is something else entirely. Well, let me, let me ask, let me throw in a couple of different additional things. Okay. Yep. I would expect, okay, so on the college side as well for the draft. Mm-hmm. Right now, college coaches are not thrilled the draft occurs during their postseason. Yep. There are examples in most years of players literally being in the dugout, getting ready to, you know, or maybe on deck, or maybe even in the batter's box when they are drafted, and, you know, by a team. Mm-hmm. And, they do not, and they understandably do not like that. This changes that dramatically, but I don't think it necessarily changes it in a way that college coaches would prefer. I, I think I agree with you 100%. I think there is an issue of the draft and the College World Series and the college playoffs happening simultaneously. No one seems to really like that. But when you move it all the way back to August, now you have and, – and right now there's a 45-day window to sign your players after you've drafted them. If it was in August, I'd imagine that would be shorter. Because only a few weeks later, players are showing up on campus. So if you have to wait until August to find out which players of your recruiting class are not going to be there, your job gets insanely harder to fill out a roster. And, oh, I'm, and, and I that mean, affects everyone. In, in the playoffs, the only teams that are affected are the teams that are in the playoffs. Now, that's a lot of teams, obviously. But if it's moved back to August, every team is affected. And now, if you rewind the clock... 10 years plus mm-hmm. what used to be the system is, is players were drafted in early June and then there was no signing deadline. You could sign as a, if you were a college player, you could sign until the day that you were, uh, you step foot into class. Mm-hmm. And there were examples most years of players literally signing like they were on campus, but they hadn't set foot in class and then they signed. So there was obviously some understandable uncertainty for college teams. Mm-hmm. However, 
most of those guys, this was the J.D. Drews of the world we were talking about, the Stephen Drews. These were the first-round picks who were trying to get, you know, like trying to get a deal worked out. Mm -hmm. And in most of those cases, you were already operating on assuming that this player was actually going to leave, right? Yes. And it was very few players. Under this situation, we're talking about a situation where instead, say that draft-eligible sophomore shortstop or that draft-eligible sophomore you, uh, team is slated to be their Saturday starter, and say that player is on, let's say, a 75% scholarship. Mm -hmm. Well, you're not going to have any idea at the end of your season at all whether that guy's going to get drafted or not. Yep. Where he's going to get drafted, whether he's going to sign. And by the way, now it wouldn't shock me at all. The Cape Cod League very well becomes a league for the USA Summer College National Team. Becomes places for the uh, draftable players to go, rising seniors, mm -hmm. because you have all of the. Especially, let's say your team was eliminated before the postseason. You have all of June. You have July, and you have part of August to raise your draft stock. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's significant. Yep. That's, and so I would, it would not stun me that you would see basically all these teams move up. They all move up a ladder, like all these leagues. So theoretically, you could have the Cape having a lot of juniors, USA Baseball having a lot of juniors, then it wouldn't shock me then that, okay, there's only so many roster spots. So then the Northwoods League, you know, has a lot of really good sophomores that are going to the Cape now. Mm -hmm. Then maybe the Coastal Plain and all these. Maybe some league starts to get into the, uh, the biz of, uh, of, hey, we're going to have the – ours is going to be a, a rising freshman league. In addition to that, I imagine you'd get a lot of showcases pop up that, that, that don't exist now for the high school kids who have just graduated. Uh, draftable draftable exactly. high school, yeah, draftable high school grads. I think you would get a lot of those. And, and one other thing that I think is interesting, outside of just the timing, is with the draft being reduced to 20, 25 rounds and with rookie level and short season leagues going away, I think you'd probably see even even greater shift, and we've seen this in recent years of teams preferring college players. But when you don't have that lower level minor league system that you can kind of take the time to to bring your high school players through and really develop them, I think you'd probably see even more college players drafted just because the system, the minor league system, is a much better fit for their development than high school players. The elite level high school players could probably still go to complex ball and then maybe make the jump to low A. But in this situation, you'd have to wonder about how many high school players could survive in the minor leagues without repeating complex ball for like three years. Right. That like, was again, a concern that was brought up to me. Yeah. Like, okay. Right now you hear guys who are described as the two year rookie ball guy. Yes. Right. We hear that all the time. This is not the first, generally it's not the first rounder you take. Mm -hmm. It's the, Really toolsy, very talented, physical tools, high school I, player. I think a great example of this player would be Trajan Fletcher, who was a kid okay. who was originally draft eligible in 2020, reclassified, so he was a young 2019 player, and he played high school ball in Maine. So 
he wasn't playing the best high school competition and now you're getting drafted and going into affiliated ball and that's a player who has fantastic tools like you were saying lots of upside but is very raw and doesn't have a lot of experience against high level competition in this new system what happens with a player like that and it is one thing to have a player go one year to the complex league the next year he goes to short season ball or the Affy League or the Pioneer League, mm-hmm. and then in year three he moves on to full season ball, low class thing, mm-hmm. right? That player is having a steady progression. Yes. It is not the same thing to say we're going to draft that player and he's going to take two, maybe he takes three years and he's playing in our complex league. Yeah. Complex league ball is groundhog day. I mean, by every, you know, Real Groundhog Day is, you know, is extended spring, but mm-hmm. complex league ball is much of that. You're in the same facility all year, you know, you show up at, you're in the same hotel room, you're, you know, all that, all the way up. Mm-hmm. There, yes, I think that those players, teams would be less likely to draft and sign them out of high school because that is not as, um, that is not as strong a development path. Mm-hmm. Now, Again, that's good, probably good news for college baseball, probably, you know, for D1 college baseball, D2 college baseball, Juco ball. So that's- I think it's, yeah, I think it's a benefit for all of them because there are still going to be players who don't really want to go to college. Uh, and if they don't want to go to complex league for three years, they would go to a Juco for a year or two and still have the ability to be draft eligible and maybe expedite their process that way. So I think it would benefit everyone as far as getting talent to the colleges. Now, whether or not major league teams – are happy with the way that college baseball develops talent is a whole nother question. Right, but, but, but the other part of this, though, that I do think that also stands out with that is, you know, okay, what also happens here, it, again, this is an initial proposal. However, if this proposal is adopted, the other thing that happens is, is so there would be this dream league that is proposed, which would yep. be – the league to catch all the players who would have been drafted in the past potentially and are not in the current system, you know, under the not current system, in the proposed system. You've yeah. cut the draft to 2025 rounds. So all of a sudden that means literally hundreds of players who would have been drafted and signed are not going to be drafted and signed. I mean, mm-hmm. you can do the math. It's if, if, if you cut the draft in half, not every player in the 21st to 40th round signs, but, that's 30 players picked per round times 20 rounds. You can do that. Now, a thing that we pointed out, and it is completely an accurate point, is most of those players drafted in those rounds will never play Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. Less than 4% of those players are going to play Major League Baseball. Okay. That's a significant point. However, you – if you're baseball, you do not want to lose that 4%. Absolutely not. So you want to have a structure to hopefully have those players cream rise to the top. That's where the Dream League comes in, where players would be paid what I would assume are – they're not getting this you know, new increased salaries. <laughs> That's not – I do not believe that is part of this design. Mm-hmm. You know, they would be – and – They would be dreaming for that money. They would be dreaming for that money. From what I understand, they would, you know, $5,000. Teams could purchase players' contracts from that league for $5,000. But 
you know, but most of those players, reality is, is they would play in those leagues and that would be the extent of their pro career. Um, if you want to, you know, and it is a pro career, much as indie ball is a pro career, but really that is, it is slightly different from independent league baseball, which the frontier league, especially is focused on signing and developing and the USPBL. I want to give them a shout out because they do a really good job of this too, of signing and developing undrafted college players. And then the, the cream rises to the top. Well, that would be the idea for this league as well. Yep. which would probably, to make the financials work, would require at least some subsidizing from major and or minor league baseball. Yep. What I have not heard is whether that league really does make financial sense to do. Mm-hmm. It makes a ton of sense if you are major league baseball proposing this. It makes a ton of sense because if you're major league baseball, ideally, if you are going to eliminate 42 or 40, or even let's say they cut it, the number, if you're going to eliminate a large number of affiliated minor league clubs, it is one thing to say, yeah, you're not going to have a Reds club anymore or an Astros club or a Braves club or whatever, but we've got this league to fill the void. It is another to say, yeah, we're sorry, you don't have baseball. Mm-hmm. And we're really sorry that you spent that several hundred thousand dollars to upgrade the stadium. You know, yeah, that, that doesn't really affect you anymore. Mm-hmm. So those are all reasons to do the Dream League. And there's also talk of, you know, like for levels that are not, you know, for happy clubs or Pioneer League clubs that can't support a Dream League club, maybe they actually have a new summer with that league teams. Yeah. So that fills those stadiums theoretically, but... There's a lot of work to make those economics work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reality is, is I will tell you right now, there are an endless supply of players. I will tell you right now what the world does not need from a talent standpoint are more summer wood bat leagues. Yeah. Now, that is not disparaging many of these summer wood bat leagues, but the reality of it is, is that there are, by last count, I believe there are over 200 Summerwood Bat League teams around the country. You know, so there are, there are Summerwood Bat League teams currently able to handle at any, almost any level of college talent. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can add more. There is an endless supply of players in many ways. You know, the, the, the JUCO backups are not currently all getting jobs. So there are ways you could, you know, the, uh, the, the D3 player who's not getting innings on his team, you know, could, you know, is not being signed right now, things like that. But, yeah. but the reality of it is, is that maybe these end up being great aren't summer wood bat leagues that are very important and all that. But the reality is, is that, you know, it just saying it's a summer wood bat league. Well, there are a lot of those right now. Um, yeah, no doubt. And so JJ, I feel like you've done a, an excellent job kind of summing up, everything uh everything that you can in a podcast at least you guys all definitely need to go read jj's piece in its entirety so you can get all the all the details and all the the nuanced uh points that are brought up but what happens now what's next i guess uh to kind of sum up this conversation well a couple of things one this is the start not the start i mean i was talking to people about this i've been reporting the story for over a year so i mean the PBA's been coming down the road for quite a long time. 
But so this is not the start of negotiations, but mm -hmm. there is something that focus attention is when you get to, we're, we're coming up on the one year mark of the PBA before the new one needs to be done. Yeah. And so because of that, you know, this is really where the negotiations are ramping up, undoubtedly. Mm -hmm. And so what we will see, you know, they're taking the month of October off from negotiations. There will be more negotiations in November. I'm sure that it will be uh, a massive topic of discussion at the winter meetings in San Diego in December. Um, and it will probably continue after that. I would be shocked if we were going to have an agreement anytime in the near future. Mm -hmm. But what we have to see, and I do not know the answer to this, and I don't think anyone really knows the answer to this right now. Is this proposal the guts of how minor league baseball is going to look in 2021 with maybe tweaks, changes, adjustments? Or is this a proposal that is, in the end, meant to frighten minor league team owners because they're supposed to hear it? They're supposed to go, this could be an absolute disaster for us. This is awful. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, does Major League Baseball then come back with what, you know, you put in air quotes here, but what, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to judge it either way. I'm just trying to lay it out. Mm -hmm. A more what would be viewed by minor league teams as a more reasonable proposal. Maybe they come back and they say, hey, yeah, we're not going to get rid of 42 teams. We're going to do some really strict um, – facility improvement requirements, really strict uh, ways to enforce those facility improvements, and maybe some very punitive measures if you don't. And maybe, again, maybe they get rid of a couple of leagues to reduce the number of teams, but not all these teams. And they increase the ticket tax, and by doing so, minor league baseball helps pay for the increase in salary, co you know, salary costs and all that. And maybe mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we look back on, you know, today and say, yeah, that was just the, that was their negotiating tactic to get a lot of what they wanted. Yep. Oh, I should, and I should include, and they completely revamped the PDC structure so that teams have much longer, they, they, that, so Major League Baseball has much more control over PDCs. I think that's something that's very important to Major League Baseball. But yeah. so that could be, that could be something where you go, oh, it didn't end up being as dramatic, as drastic as it sounded like it was going to be, you know, this Friday that we're talking. Um, however, I mean, one other thing I do want to add with that is that it, I do think is significant and it's something to pay attention to. Normally, normally, uh, there's a whole story on Baseball America about the history of the PBA going back to 1903. Enjoy. But normally, a PBA agreement has been often a seven-year agreement. Sometimes it's been as much as a 10-year agreement. Now, there usually have been opt-outs in, in the middle of it where teams could, you know, where the sides could renegotiate a little bit, but generally it's been long agreements. This agreement that MLB right now is, is aiming for a five-year agreement. And one of the things that is coming out of that is, is that that really causes concern, I think, among people on the MILB side. Mm -hmm. Because five years means that really three years after this agreement, you start talking about the next one. Because I mean, again, we were talking about this PBA. I was, 
talking to people in the winter meetings at it last year, two years away from the agreement. Well, there is some thought that no matter what happens this time, that this could in some ways be Major League Baseball's proof of concept of let's see where it goes in this one. But at the same time, maybe, you know, if it's 120 teams this time, maybe it's 90. You know, maybe it's, it's A ball, double A, triple A. Maybe it's further rationalization of it down the road. Maybe we don't need this many minor league teams. And the difficult thing here for minor league baseball is, is that, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I do understand some part of negotiations. You know, I, I, you know, everyone does. Major league baseball has a lot more negotiating leverage in this situation than minor league baseball does. Mm-hmm. Minor league baseball really at the end of the day, just wants to keep things as close to what they are right now as they can. If Major League Baseball had come to Minor League Baseball and say, hey, we just want to roll over this agreement for another 10 years, Minor League Baseball would have said, great, we don't need to make any changes. Major League Baseball is the one that absolutely positively wants changes. Mm -hmm. It is way harder to negotiate from we just want to keep the status quo than it is if you have significant asks. And again, I don't think there's a way minor league baseball can change this. I mean, I don't think it makes any sense. I don't think that they would be in a better position if they had some crazy asks of major league baseball, like, hey, we want to get rid of the ticket tax. We want you to pay for all transportation, all that. Major league baseball would come to the first meeting, say, uh, yeah, no. And if you want to take this further, I mean, at the end of the day, Major League Baseball needs as just a reality, like, okay, rewind to 1990. In 1990, Major League Baseball, that year there were two winter meetings because it was so ugly. But Major League Baseball started preparing for the idea that for all their teams who didn't have player development contracts for 1991, they would play all their games at their spring training conferences. Mm-hmm. We'll open it up. We'll charge admission. You know, come come see the future Giants and the future, you know, Cubs face off today. Double A, triple A, you know, A ball. And minor league baseball started preparing for the idea that maybe they would have to procure their own players to fill their teams mm-hmm. and pay their salaries and all that. Of those two, I'll ask you, Carlos, which seems like the easier thing to do? <laughs> yeah. If, Point taken. If, ma- if Major League Baseball decided that, again, it will not get this way, but if they decided it got so ugly that they said in 2021, you know what, we're going to take our, we're going to take our players and we're going to go home. Mm-hmm. All these players are going to play at their, you know, at our spring training facilities all year. The complexes, that's where they're going to all play their games. That's now again. It'd be a PR hit for them. It'd be an ugly black eye. It would not be, I'm not saying it would be all happy and everyone would love it, Mm -hmm. but they have the facilities. (laughs) They house all those players there for spring training. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not something where they can't do this and pull it off. If you're minor league teams, at the end of the day, if you don't have a PDC for 2021 and Major League Baseball takes their ball, takes their players and goes home, the difference of them going out and getting players 
which there are players that exist. You know, I mean, essentially you would turn all of affiliate minor league baseball conceivably into indie ball. But telling all these, these teams, you have to go get your own players and you have to pay them. And you have to find the right players, which is things that no minor league team and affiliate ball has had to do for multiple decades. Mm-hmm. That's not really a viable long-term option. And so at the end of the day, that's where minor league baseball has difficulty in these negotiations. Minor league baseball's leverage in these negotiations is how much of a public relations beating is major league baseball willing to take. But they do not, as I see it, and again, I may be wrong. I'm not saying I know all of these things. But as I see it, at the end of the day, minor league baseball, they can't force major league baseball to agree to their side. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if major league baseball does not want to view this as a partnership and wants to view this as an adversarial or at best a neutral relationship, it is very hard for minor league baseball to convince them to do otherwise. And I mean, the reality of it is, is that the way I've had multiple people put it to me is, is that in 1990, it got ugly, but in 1990, everyone involved was still, I mean, again, this is a term I'm sure you hear a lot in scouting circles too. Everyone involved was baseball people is the way I've had it put to me. Yep. And the reality of it is now is that on the minor league side, there is absolutely a feeling that Major League Baseball's viewpoint on this, and again, they could be wrong. I'm not saying they're right. But their viewpoint is Major League Baseball is viewing this for their short-term individual gain, whether that negatively impacts baseball as a whole in the long term or not. And again, they have a, they have a reasonably solid argument there, which is, is that you can make the argument on one side that says, you know what, minor league baseball has said they're not about the game anymore, they're not about the score, they're about entertainment. And that's absolutely true. I've had so many minor league GMs, so many minor league owners tell me that over the last 20 years. You know, it's you hear it over and over and over. Oh, most of our fans leave the game every night, not even knowing who won. And that all may be true. At the same time, in many places around the country, if you want to watch baseball, it's going to be college baseball, you know, a high-level baseball. It's going to be college baseball or minor league baseball. And in many cases, it's minor league baseball. We're based in Durham, North Carolina. My kids have gone to one Major League Baseball game in their lives because we are five-plus hours away from any Major League Baseball game. Mm-hmm. They go to minor league games pretty much every year, and they have a good time. If they're going to be baseball fans, and again, it's anecdotal, I know, but if they're going to be baseball fans, they're going to be baseball fans because of minor league baseball. That is what is going to make them baseball. And that is what, what minor league baseball's best argument they have is essentially public opinion, and lobbying with, I mean, there also are, there are minor league teams in many, most states and in most districts. And so it's congressional lobbying also to basically say, don't let them believe. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it does seem like this is going to be contentious for, for several years to come. I mean, not several years, but for months to come. Yeah. Well, JJ, uh, thank you for breaking all this down. 
Thanks for writing that piece. If you guys haven't checked it out, definitely do so. You can see all the details on the uh, proposed MLB uh, changes. Uh, JJ also has a history of the kind of MLB and MILB relationship over the years. I think Teddy Cahill just dropped a story on how moving the draft to August would impact college baseball. We're going to have another story coming up soon about how this affects the summer showcase circuit. Uh, so a lot still to follow up with this uh, and, and follow along in the next few months, obviously. Um, and thank you to all of our subscribers, because I know JJ mentioned this earlier, but the subscribers, uh, you don't have to be a subscriber to read these stories uh, specifically, but the subscribers are the reason that we're able to do big pieces like this and, and the reason that JJ is able to spend a year, as he said, reporting this uh, and getting it out there. So really thank you to all of you who subscribe. And thank you to everyone who's, who's listened to the podcast and downloaded. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you listen to podcasts on. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, but for JJ Cooper, I'm Carlos Colazzo. Thanks for listening, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.